Our scripture reading this morning comes from Micah, chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk with your God. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Kennedy, and good morning to all of you. Yeah, it's good, and those of you who are in our... Uh, I guess, extension of our worship center, and even those who are tuning in via the live stream, we're thankful to have you here and be able to worship together this morning, and, and yes, uh, we're, uh, looks like uh, all our plans uh, have worked so far. I'm assuming you're on in the gym. Um, if, if not, no one tell me till it's all over, uh, <clears throat> but uh, hopefully you've got your Bibles open to uh, the book of Micah. Micah's in the Old Testament, if you don't know where Micah is, and if you can find uh, Matthew, it may be in the New Testament, work your way to the left, you will, you will find Micah after just a few books. It's a short book, but uh, I think it's a poignant book, especially for where we are today. Well, over the last, I guess, 10 or 15 years, at least in my anecdotal experience uh, in watching the world, there's been a, uh, I would say, a renewed interest in uh, what we may call social justice issues. And when I speak of social justice, I think I'm popping a lot here, aren't I? There we go. Specifically, when I'm talking about social justice, uh, we think of activism, don't we? we think of activism uh, to end injustices, as you will, uh, among uh, particularly marginalized people groups, uh, whether that's locally or around our nation or even around the world. And I remember particularly early on as a Christian being introduced to these matters. And, uh, and I remember most vividly, at least around the time I was in college, the, the, the kind of the all the rave was over adoption and fostering. Maybe you remember those days. And, and so Christians were seeking to take seriously James's admonition that true and undefiled religion cares for both those who are widows and orphans, and and so adoption, fostering was a, was an avenue that was um, kind of becoming heavy on the scene, and and you began to see new books published. You saw every conference imaginable uh, to help. People think through this. Pastors were preaching sermon series. There's Bible study curriculum. And all these things were to rally the church around this movement of adoption. Now, certainly, adoption is wonderful. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? And many of you have adopted, and, and we get to experience the, the blessing of that. You as a, as a family, having children in your home, but also we as a church, um, getting to experience that blessing indirectly. And so we see through adoption the beauty and the, and the splendor of our God. After all, our God is an adopting God, isn't he? 
He's adopted us in His Son. He's adopted us as sons and daughters. And so when we think about God's love for us and Him adopting us into His family, we then think about, on a, on a, I guess on a human level, when we see adoption, the glorious picture that it is of the gospel of rescuing a child, not only from a life of earthly suffering, but if that Christian or that family adopted Adopting as a Christian family, all that child gets to be brought in and taught the gospel and raised up in the truth and saved from eternal suffering. But if you notice with that movement, there began it began to take a, a life of its own, almost in a sense, if, if you weren't as zealous as some people, well, then you must not really care about orphans. If you aren't all about adopting yourself, entering the foster care system, giving money, uh, advocating, and doing it in a specified way, it began to have a life of its own, almost like it was a litmus test. If you don't do it like this, well, therefore, you must not really care about people. Well, since then, other issues have come and gone. Not that that one's gone. We, we still we support adoption. We want that happening. But you think about other issues. Certainly one that would be come to mind is, is poverty. Think about it uh, from a global scale. In third world countries, there, there's a heavy emphasis that often comes to solve world poverty. Or, or you think about, uh, this one's more recent, uh, at least uh, in time, but the rights of immigrants and refugees, or rescuing children and, and young women from sex trafficking, or abuse of all kinds. And we've even seen in our own denomination things come out and amongst the churches, and, and, and there's been an awareness of these things. And, and in fact, there's booklets written on it, and hey, you need to teach your church through all these things. There's all these emphases. And, and now the current... Um, moment is concerns what's often called systemic racism. And all these issues share a common concern. I'm not saying it's a negative thing. Just in general, there's a common concern to eliminate the oppression and suffering of a marginalized group of people. In fact, I think we could look at the Scripture, and the Scripture is written from the standpoint of the marginalized. It's written from the standpoint of being oppressed often, certainly from the Old Testament, but that even comes in the New Testament. And yet, one of the things that we have to be careful of when we see these movements, these um, these calls for activism, if you will, not that we shouldn't have a concern. Not that we should abandon a care for the world. Absolutely not. But there can be a temptation to believe that if everyone is not as zealous about choose your issue, well, then you must not be a mature Christian. And in fact, if you don't care about it and want to solve it the way we think you should solve it, you might not be a Christian at all. That's the kind of pressure, I don't know if you all are seeing, not, this is even within evangelicalism, people pressing articles being written. And so there's a guilt that begins to be laid upon God's people to do something or to be something 
in order to be a Christian, or, or in order to be just? And I think that's one of the questions. I even had some of you, through every sermon, there's always something, hey, when are you going to address this, or when are you going to address that? Do you want the sermon series to end at some point? It has to, you know, there, there's only so much that I, I can do. But one of the questions that often comes up is because everything is a justice issue. And it often becomes overwhelming. How can I be about the work of the Lord? Because I don't know which one to pick. And even when one to pick, I don't know what to do. What does it mean to be just? And it can just become overwhelming and suffocating even at times. And what I want us to understand is that actually the Scripture doesn't put such guilt on you. It doesn't do that. It doesn't say you don't have to worry about the poor or widows or orphans or, or marginalized people. It doesn't say the, you don't have to be your brother's keeper or you don't have to be concerned with your neighbor. It doesn't say that, but it doesn't say what I often hear is being said today. So I want us to turn to the scriptures, and hopefully you're in Micah by now. And I want us to consider how does God call his people to be just? Because the issues in the world, they're complex, aren't they? There's a lot going on, and even if you pick one of them, just say poverty for that instance. Poverty is complex. It's not always a result of, oh, someone was lazy or their own sin. It could be the result of someone else's sin against them, or it could be because of a natural disaster. And, and there's a mixing of things, and, and, and you just can't have a cookie-cutter answer for everything. So these things are endless. They're complex. And yet God does not place the guilt of the world's problems upon his people. He doesn't place this guilt on us in some sense that we have to atone for the sins of the world. i got good news for you. His son did that. He has placed that guilt on his son to bring about the restoration of all things. To do that for all who would put faith in him and those who put their faith in his son guess what he does he makes us right with him and he teaches us how to be right with our fellow man he doesn't say clean the outside of the cup solve the world's problems and then you will be righteous in my sight no he says all come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden and i will give you rest so that's where I want us to turn our attention. I want us to think about how God calls his people to live justly. And what I want you to notice is that though the world and maybe Christians are making it so complicated, so burdensome, in fact, it's not even enough for you to repent of your own sins. You must account for all sins of your people group. And you can never get under it. Get out from under it. You are guilty forever if you go down that road that the world says. Yet God's call upon his people is surprisingly simple. It's actually very simple, yet profound. It's simple, yet profound. His burden is light, and yet it can bear the weight of the world's troubles. 
In the book of Micah, what do we see going on here? In the book of Micah, God is responding to injustices that are occurring in that nation, in the nation of Israel, a different nation than us. We aren't Israel. Israel is a theocracy. And so you're going to see religion and society overlapping. And sometimes we need to do some work to somehow parse some of the commands out and know how they apply to us and how they do not. But here are some of the things that are going on in Israel that God is charging them with injustice in the land. These include rampant idolatry. There was unlawful seizure of property. There was corrupt civil and religious leadership. And along with this, there was crooked business practices being done. And those involved in these acts of injustice, as we're going to see, even in our text this morning, believe that their sins could be covered, their injustices could be atoned for, if they would just engage in the outward rites of sacrifice and offering. You see that in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And it starts off rather normal. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with the calves a year old? And then it escalates. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Maybe I should give my firstborn child. Now God would never ask of that. But here would you see the sacrifice. Maybe I have to atone in these extraordinary, extreme measures. And then the Lord will be pleased. This is sometimes how I think Christians are thinking about when we have seen extreme injustices done in the world, we've seen injustice done by the church in the world. If we just look at our history as a nation, we can see just a generation ago horrific things done even by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may believe that now your job is to somehow atone for all those sins. The sins of all your ancestors. What's it going to take? What I want you to see here in this text is that God never deals with our sin by addressing our outward righteousness. Rather, He always addresses the sinful heart which then leads to acts of righteousness. You have to have the trajectory right. Yes, we can see all these sins. We can see the consequences of sins passed down from generation to generation. And you might think the way to solve it is through sacrifice. But what does Micah say? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Surprisingly simple here. And what does the Lord require of you? What does He ask of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's a freeing simplicity here. Instruction about justice. 
which contains wisdom from God for living justly in any situation. He addresses you. He addresses us this morning as we gather assembled under the preaching of the Word. He says, what do I ask of you? To, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with me. And so as we're faced with a barrage of calls for justice in the world, here, here's my main point this morning. I, wanna, I want us to entrust ourselves to God's justice in Christ, which calls us to treat others fairly, love others sacrificially, and walk with God intimately. That's what he calls us to. That's what we learn when we put on Christ. And so what does this mean? What does it mean to be a just person, to be about justice, even what I would call social justice, as the Bible would say? Because all justice is social. It has relational component. How do I do that? Well, it begins with simply seeking to treat others fairly. This is what he's getting at here in, in, in verse 8, to do justice. Notice there's an action to it. There is a doing of justice, but what does this mean? Well, that word justice, it's a legal term that's used throughout the Old Testament, which speaks particularly in this context of applying the Mosaic law. You're like, okay, what's the Mosaic law? It's, it's the first five books of the Bible. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's summarized in the Great Commandments, love God and love neighbor. It is the call to apply the law of God, God's holy, good, and righteous law, equally to all people, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is justice. And when we think of justice and this, how this word is used, and I hope to show us this, Justice is not just I don't do wrong or I don't treat people wrongly. It's also the positive I seek to treat people well. Okay? It's not a neutral term. That's what I'm saying. And I think that's instructive for us. And always recognize it. Am I, am I just not hating people? But am I actually loving others? And this type of justice is expounded upon in Leviticus 19. So we're going to go to the law. So if you hold your spot, but you need to turn to Leviticus chapter 19. And this is just one text that we could go to that expounds upon what it means to be just. And in fact, uh, Moses is applying the Ten Commandments to life, if you will. And so when you think about justice, you're thinking about what God says is right and how to treat people. And, and Moses expounds upon this in, in Israel's day. But I think there are principles for us even to kind of grasp this a little bit more. And so if you come to verse 9 of Leviticus 19, Moses says, when you, when you reap the harvest of your land, meaning you're a farmer, and you've reaped the land, you, you've got your harvest, he says, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. 
I am the Lord your God. Now, we're not under the Old Testament law. We, we are under a theocracy. This is where we have to do some of the work. But this is all summarized in love God and love neighbor. What is this love neighbor? And there is a principle even here that you are considerate of the poor. So what, what does that look like for us? Well, it, justice shows a concern for the poor, namely that you and I aren't to live such stingy and greedy lives that we have nothing to share with anyone else. We kind of talked about that in vocation sermon. The goal of your vocation is not to accumulate and accumulate as much as you can and take what all you can. God doesn't teach us that. And that's what he's addressing here. No, actually, he's telling them a just farmer, even in how he conducts his business, has a concern for the poor in his community. He has room for them. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 6, 18. He says to the rich, be rich in good works ready to share. Or in Ephesians 4, 28, he says to the thief, this is repentance. No longer steal, but do honest work so that you may have something to share with anyone who has need. That's one element of justice. Justice, as we look here in verses 11 and 12, is also truthful with everyone. Look at what Moses says. He shall not steal. Now, you're like, oh. How's that about truth? We'll see. He's talking about the Eighth Commandment. You shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. What's he talking about? People who lie use words to take advantage of somebody so they may steal things from them. I mean, we're always worried about that, right? You're talking, especially, you know, I don't know about uh, you, if you've ever dabbled in like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, you're always worrying, is this person telling me the truth? Because I don't want to have to pay for this more than I have to. But you're wondering, are they just? Well, the people of God are to be, hey, what you put on there is to be truthful so that the price reflects it. Moving on, verses 13 and 14, justice does not take advantage of others. He says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. He says, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. What's he talking about here? Your employer. And, and you withhold wages all through the night. You don't pay them for their due. Or you may work them harder in seeing how much can you get out of them with as little pay as you can get or have to give. No, a just person says, I want to pay you worthy of your wages. I want to treat you with dignity. I want to treat you fairly. He goes on, or, or, or slandering people who cannot defend or speak for themselves. That's the deaf or the blind. We've been, if you've been in the world long enough, you see even a, a, a kids at school who's picked on. A kid who's maybe a little slower. 
kid who has a stutter, the kid who has some physical um, malady, something like that. And it, you know, it doesn't stop there. If you ever worked in the business place and you see somebody else, you can see people picking on them, taking advantage of them, getting them to do things, and everyone laughing at them. And they often can be taken advantage of in a way that they're, they're, the things that they are rightly do are taken from them. Finally, justice shows no favoritism. You see this in verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. So now, it's now when you are wronged and, and those who are, are at least exercising justice in society, what, what does that look like? He says, you shall not be, this is very interesting, partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness or justice shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and if you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, and not stand up against the life of your neighbor. What's, it, what's he talking about? Just laws that are applied equally to everyone, whether they are rich or whether they are poor. And Moses sums up this entire section in verse 18 saying justice is simply loving your neighbor as yourself. It's simple as that, but yet it expands into all sorts of areas, doesn't it? That's what justice looks like. So it means that true justice is an equal treatment of every person. And when we're thinking about laws and society, we want laws, we want to vote for laws, we want to advocate for laws that are fair to every person and doesn't show favoritism. However, I think oftentimes when we hear about justice, it's not about equal treatment of all people. Now justice has become about equal outcomes for all people. But here's what I want you to notice in this text. I want you to know that there's a vast array of different people. And when justice is served, it doesn't obliterate the differences. What do you notice? You have landowners and sojourners. Who are sojourners? Immigrants. People who have no, no nation. He doesn't say, now you need to give up your land because they have no land. No, he just says, be generous with what you have. You have people who have sight and those who are blind, people who have hearing and those who are deaf. You have rich people and you have poor people. But notice that justice wasn't making sure that everyone was exactly the same. No, it was about treating people fairly under the same law. And that's important for us to see. It isn't justice about making sure everybody is the same. Oneness doesn't mean sameness. Nor, however, and this is, I think, maybe some an area, but maybe those in us who in our demographic, maybe our political leanings, need to watch our heart. Justice 
yeah, we, we champion, yeah, it doesn't mean everybody's the same. But it, it also doesn't mean that you aren't your brother's keeper. It doesn't mean, well, I worked hard, I've taken care of my own, I have no responsibility to anybody else. Let them do their own work. No, that's not justice either. And this is what many in Israel had abandoned. They weren't treating people fairly. What were they doing? They were actively taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable. Hopefully you got your fingers still back in Micah. Let's go back there. And I just want to have one example. And as you're turning there, I would encourage you today, maybe this afternoon, read the book of Micah. You're like, oh no, a whole book of the Bible? Guess what? It's only seven chapters. It's really short. But take what you heard today and then think about it, because I can't preach everything in Micah this morning. But here's one example of injustice in what God is talking about. This actively treating people unfairly. And in Micah chapter 2, the word of the Lord comes to Israel and says, Woe to those who devise wickedness. Do you hear that active language? And work evil on their beds. They lay at night and they plot how they're going to take advantage of people the next day. And when morning dawns, they perform it. Why? Because it is in the power of their hand. Verse 2, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. They plotted. They thought, how can I take that guy's stuff? And they plotted at night, and then they did it. Why? Because they were empowered to do so. This is where you do see people can abuse their power. Well, what kind of power? Well, it means that there was no justice in this case for the vulnerable in Israel. Those who had seemed to be a significant amount of people that characterized the nation of Israel for a whole book to be written against them were taking active advantage of the vulnerable in their society. Now, does such abuse happen like this in our world? Yes. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. And we, we even see silly examples like politicians who, who say during COVID you can't go get your hair done, but they get their hair done, right? Those are silly ones, but the reason that's a big deal is because we see it in other areas too, don't we? Why is Planned Parenthood able to murder thousands a day because they have the power to do so because no one's going to charge them with murder or why is it that all the cash advance places are strategically in the most poor communities so that they can exact extreme interest against someone so they can take advantage of people or why do those phone calls come particularly to the elderly, about worrying about their social security and you need to hand over your information or credit card. Why do they come? So they may take advantage of you. Now, fortunately, there are laws trying to stop that. But those are injustices, if you will. Those are things that are going on. Or, or when we consider 
a crime committed by a, a rich and famous person, and the same crimes committed by whether a poor person or just a regular person like us, and then the sentencings are vastly different. Or they're giving, oh, you're on home arrest for all this time, but someone like us, we know we would be in the worst conditions possible. That's injustice. And why does it happen? Because the world, the way of the world, shows favoritism. And that should not be so among the people of God. People of God are to treat all people fairly. And here's, here, here, here's where I think, I'm not able to unpack this a bunch, but wherever we're able to exact influence, we want to speak up for those who aren't treated fairly. So when able, when you have opportunity, when the need comes and is presented to you and you are able to do it, you do have a responsibility. And you aren't to be like the one who wants to justify themselves, say they're just by saying, well, are they my neighbor? Do they qualify? Here's how we do it. Are they in the church? Do I have a responsibility to, to them? What poor do I have a responsibility to? And there, there is priorities, but, but I think sometimes we say those things to get us off the hook. Like I said, there's more to say about that, but let's move on. Well, how does, where does such justice arise? Well, it arises from a heart that loves others sacrificially. This is what God is getting at here in Micah. He says to love kindness. Maybe many of your um, Bibles say love mercy. Well, that word right there is, I usually don't do this, but this needs to be done today, is the word chesed in Hebrew. It's an important word throughout the Old Testament which speaks of God's faithfulness, steadfastness to his covenant love, to his promise-keeping love. It's often translated God's steadfast love. You see it throughout the Psalms often. It's his steadfast mercy. And what Micah is exhorting the people of God to do is to love God's mercy. Love it. Cherish it. Find it so satisfying and beautiful to your soul. Love God's kindness that you have experienced. Because when that love fills your heart, you can't help but be merciful and kind to another. You see how it starts from the inside. You learn the love of God, and you will show the love of God. Once you see, this is exactly what God is doing here in this text. Look in verses 3 and 5 of chapter 6. God says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Have I wearied you? Answer me. Like, have I, have I just treated you so wrong that you have abandoned all my ways? I've just been this awful parent. Most of us have experienced, if you've had kids, at some point, you don't meet whatever expectation, and they say, I don't love you, or I think you're mean, or I hate you. Why? Because you're just an awful parent because you don't give them what they want, right? Well, Israel's doing that. And God says, okay, what, how have I wearied you? Let me just 
remind you of all the things I've done for you. For I brought you, verse 4, from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent you, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, designed, devised? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the righteous acts, the just acts of the Lord. What's he calling them to do? Remember all the blessings that I have given to you as my covenant people. Remember all the acts of deliverance and salvation that I've provided for you. Egypt one's pretty self-explanatory. You were in slavery and I heard your cries and I rescued you. What's the next one? You, you may not be familiar with Balak and, and Balaam, but Balak was a king of Moab and saw the people of God wandering out of the wilderness and he hired Balaam, a prophet, a false prophet, to, to rain down curses on them. And Israel's oblivious to these devices being done against them, but yet the Lord was protecting them in the wilderness. And he brought them all the way to cross the Jordan, which was between the land of Shittim and Gilgal. He said, I brought you into the promised land. I brought you here. I gave you a home. What is he reminding of them? I'm reminding you of my mercy towards you, my steadfast love towards you, my kindness towards you, which he said are the righteous, the just acts of the Lord. Justice is mercy. Justice is also mercy. But what about us? How? how are we called to remember? Do this in remembrance of me at the Lord's table, right? What do we remember? God's covenant love and the cross. What has he done for us? Will we see his mercy on full display? In Jesus, right? I want you to consider 1 John 3.16. John is writing, and he says, By this we know love. This is the definition. What's the this? That he, I think we have this on the screen if you all want to change the slides. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And what? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But notice what John says. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, get a job. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Why? Because our Lord didn't do that. He didn't say, get up to me. No, he sought us out when we were a stranger. He saw our need and he sacrificially loved us. So what are we being called to? We're being called to sacrificial love as we have received and experienced it through the new covenant in Christ. In Christ, we experience God's chesed, His covenant love. And the more you cherish Christ and His gospel and you think about the mercy and the patience and kindness that He still extends to you in Christ. Oh, How can you withhold forgiveness from another? 
How can you not be reconciled to your brother and sisters if they come to you and ask for forgiveness? You can't, as John says, harbor bitterness in your heart and turn a blind eye to the needs in this room and claim that you know the love of God. No, that love has been poured out into our hearts. And if it's been poured out into our heart, it's like a river that flows over to other people. And I think this is important for us to keep in mind, especially as we consider the events going on. And there's a lot of rage on every side. A lot of posting, a lot of talking, a lot of chatting, a lot of energy being exerted to talk about these things. And, and what I want to encourage us with is that you don't have to approve of the violence or the methods to show mercy. It's not an either or. They're good news, right? There's a way of speaking to the issues while also extending the mercy of God. And the issues are complex. They're often complex, especially when you're thinking about poverty and you're thinking about generational poverty. And so, yes, you look at some people, they are acting out of hate. They're criminals. But were you ever at one time blinded from the gospel and held captive by the evil one to do his will? Because sometimes I think we forget that, the way we talk about people. And we just blanket people, groups. It doesn't mean there isn't justice for what people do wrong, but I actually want you to receive mercy so you come to Christ. But I think sometimes we need a guard. Do we have hatred in our heart because we don't like them? Because their ideology is dangerous? Yeah. Still be merciful to them. See them as image bearers. Or have you considered what it's like to grow up in such extreme poverty and generational brokenness in a family? If you just get a job, show up on time, do your schoolwork, you have all the same opportunities as everybody else. Except you had a mother and father who told you that. What do you have that you haven't received? Paul says to the Corinthians. Then why do you act like you didn't receive it? As if you did it. That all creeps in all of our hearts, right? Creeps in all of our hearts. And I, I, would, I would encourage you, not all of us have the same opportunity to walk among genuinely broken poor people but the more you do you realize mm, things aren't as easy as my simple political answers I give things aren't just oh I gotta just just a fix no no just like you weren't a simple fix and you still aren't a simple fix the Lord's long-suffering and gracious to you even when you make the most boneheaded decisions. But how often are we quick to say you're worthless, I'm done with you? Yet that's not how we have known Christ and Christ has known us. You just think about those who have been taken advantage of and abused their whole life. They don't trust anybody in authority. Is that okay? No, but you've got to be understanding you got to realize that they did not have the same things as you. And that should give you compassion. The way you talk. 
about people, to people. Well, time, as usual, is fleeting. I want you to know, though, that such mercy doesn't originate in you. It originates from our God, and that's what Micah tells him. And walk humbly with your God. What's the point here? The point is that our understanding of justice flows from our knowledge of God. You want to be a just person? Walk with Jesus. Walk with him. How do you walk with him? Well, right now you're doing it, if you're listening. You're under his word, and right now, some of you, your hearts are melting. The love of God's filling your heart. You're reminded, yes, the Lord is so long-suffering with me, and I am so not with anybody else. And he's softening your heart. That is the grace of God. You are walking with him. And he's pouring his love in you. And you are realizing right now, I was harsh to that person. I need to go back and ask them forgiveness. I have developed a callousness to those who are less fortunate than me. I have just not listened to anyone. I have just categorized people as liberal or alt-right. And I have just set them in their ways. And I have cut my heart off to them. And the Lord is softening your heart right now. That's the grace of God working in you as you walk humbly and you receive his word and you say, yes, Lord, you were so good to me. So good to me. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaks of a greater righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What was their righteousness? Oh, they had all the right rules. They knew how to keep the law to a T. All their boxes were tight, but yet they did not know mercy. They were the truth people, except when it applied to them. <laughs> and yet Jesus says, follow me, and I'll teach you how to live justly. I'll teach you what it means to be a peacemaker. I'll teach you how to love your enemy. I'll teach you how to absorb wrongs and how to have an eye out for others and not for yourself. And I'll show you so much that I'll go to the cross and I will die for my enemies. And I'll die for you. Not when you were cleaned up, not when you had your life together, not when you had figured it out, not because you were on the right side of the issue. No, while you were still hostile. I died for you. And when we walk with God like that, notice the end of Micah, and this is where we close. Look at what Micah declares. His last word, which has brought stinging rebuke to injustices in his midst, his last word to Israel is, verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Amen. Because, look, he delights in steadfast love. He delights in chesed. Micah says, love chesed because God delights in it. You want to have the heart of God, delight in what God delights in. And again, have compassion on us, and he will tread our iniquities underfoot, and he will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Amen, right? That is what God has done for rebels like us. And we know that this came true as 
cross came, right? When was this, when's he going to stop being angry with us forever? At the cross. For the justice and mercy of God were on full display. And so for this reason, what has he done? What does it look like for us to do justice? Well, today I, I laid kind of maybe the principles. Our last Sunday, I plan to wrap this up by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and looking what has the cross done as he has reconciled us to himself? Oh, he has entrusted us with a ministry, a stewardship. What is that? The ministry of reconciliation by which we beg people on behalf of God. Be made right with God. Know the mercy of God so that you may experience the blessed justice of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I do pray that we would be enamored by your righteousness, O oh Lord. By your goodness, your mercy, your kindness that has been lavished upon us in your Son. And how patient you were wooing each and every one of us to trust the gospel. And you weren't judging us the moment we sinned, but you were steadfast in your patience. Oh, may we learn your patience with others, always extending the righteousness, the mercy, the redemption and grace that is found in your Son. And as we understand it, we would go and we would seek to treat others fairly, to love them sacrificially, and walk with you intimately, Lord. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.